Listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two completely opposite longtime friends. I'm Carrie, and I bring the practical buzzkill vibe to this partnership. And I'm Amy. I tend to be upbeat and social, and some people even say I can be a little bit over the top with my enthusiasm. Each week, we have book nerd conversations with each other and sometimes a special guest. We not only talk about what we're reading, but also book-adjacent topics such as... Stuff we've had to Google while reading. New titles on our TBR list. Film adaptations that we've seen. And bookish news. At the end of our show, you'll have new books to put on your nightstand and hopefully a laugh or two along the way. So Carrie, our topic this week is middle grade books because it's March, middle grade March. And so... We're going to talk about some of our favorite middle grade reads, and you may hear some cat purring in this episode because I have a little friend with me this week. My daughter is on spring break, and I am cat-sitting her little cat, Miso, and he is rubbing all over us and jumping all over us and is a very loud purr. So if you hear purring, then just, you know, either enjoy it or ignore it, whichever whichever is your jam. (laughs) I've got a kitty cat on my lap right right now. So Carrie, anything going on? Um, No. (laughs) I got nothing. You got nothing. Mm. Well, my, my big accomplishment this week was that I finally finished A Pale Blue Eye by Lewis Bayard. And I liked the book a lot, but it was slow going. It was slow going for me because... Well, it's a pretty long book, but also because it's a book that is set in the 1830s. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, a young Edgar Allan Poe is one of the characters, but it is written in the style of that time period, which is very wordy. The syntax of the sentences are a little bit different, and it just, it slowed me down. Mm -hmm. And so I finally finished it. It probably took me... Three weeks, maybe, to finish it, which usually I can get through a book quicker than that, but it took me a while. But I was excited when I finished it, and the ending was definitely a surprise. And so I watched the movie last night with my husband and my mom and dad. We went and visited my parents over the weekend, and I thought that the film was very well done, but once again, it was not as good as the book because there was all kinds of backstory that you just don't get in the movie. So that. So what do you think of uh, the guy who played Poe? I thought he was a very, very good Poe. Yeah. And I really like Christian Bale, too. Although, it's kind of funny. I really liked Christian Bale in the role. But it seemed like everybody else had an accent that you would imagine <laughs> with, like, that time period. Mm-hmm. Like, a little bit of an affectation. Mm-hmm. And he did not. Mm-hmm. He just sounded like... A normal dude. Now, part of that might have been that he was supposed to be, of a, he was playing a a retired police detective from New York City, mm-hmm. so, sort of working class maybe. And a lot of these other people were um, of higher social status. So maybe that was why. Mm-hmm. That was the only thing that stuck out to me a little bit, that he sounded different than all the other characters. Yeah. I mean, I thought that visually it was beautiful with mm-hmm. all the snow and it kept your interest i mean it yeah. kept my interest and it was set at, in west point um and there's a murder that happens and edgar Allan poe is a young west point 
cadet, which is true. He did go to West Point. If you like a slow burn mystery, historical mystery, I would recommend it. We've had a hard time finding movies Mm. because it just seems like the things that we want to see aren't out yet. Like we want to see everything everywhere all at once, Mm. Mm -hmm. but it's not on any of the streaming services. So we're kind of waiting on that. And it just seems like we've seen the things that we wanted to see. And now we're kind of like, what are we going to watch? There's not much, at least that I want to watch. So um. we're recording this on Sunday, March 12th. The Oscars are tonight. Do you plan to watch them? No, not me either. But I'm going to see if I can get my husband to maybe watch. I really want to see Marcel Lachelle with shoes on. (laughs) Have you seen that? I have heard of it. I have not seen it. It's an animated that's been nominated in the animated category. But I mean, it's family friendly. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a type of thing where adults can appreciate it too. Yeah. So I'd like to see if I can get Krista maybe watch that. I, in fact, did not get my husband to watch Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Maybe next time I need to offer to throw in a bottle of bourbon. But no, I'm not going to watch the Oscars. Mm-mm. I want to hear who wins, but I don't care no. really about that. Yeah. And they don't announce the big winners till the very end. And God, I'm not going to suffer Mm-mm. through two hours of, I mean, I hope. The nothing, slap. Yeah. Hopefully nothing really exciting like the slap happens again. <laughs> that was, that was a bad kind of exciting. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to some bookish news. My bookish news is really only news to me. <laughs> so this past week I have been seeing on social media all kinds of authors that I follow or that we've interviewed, booksellers that we know, all at this conference in Seattle, the AWP, which stands for the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. It was in Seattle this year, and uh, it made me like long to be there. It sounds like it was so fun, all these writers set up, signing their books and writing programs and small presses and All kinds of things. Well, I was looking at the program a little bit, and there was a little caption under a picture or something saying that Seattle was an UNESCO city of literature. Hmm. And I thought, huh, I wonder what that means. And so I looked it up, and it's a program that UNESCO, what does UNESCO stand for? I look at the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Right. That's a big thing for me. Right. So it's the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. So it's a specialized agency of the United Nations. And I agree. I like to go to UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Well, they also started this, it's called the Creative Cities Network in 2004, which includes 295 cities globally, and it it can include things such as folk art, literature, design, film, music, and media arts. So that started in 2004. So if you narrow it down to just cities of literature, there are 42 from six continents and 28 countries. And I'm going to assume that Louisville ain't one of them. Louisville ain't one of them, but neither <laughs> is New York City. Like, Really? It, yes. Hmm. So I looked at the list to see well, which ones are, are in the United States mm-hmm. because I thought Seattle, I mean, I like Seattle. I've been to Seattle. I'd like to visit Seattle again, but I it doesn't scream to me like... Literature. City of literature, right? <laughs> so 
There were only two on there, unless I missed one. There were only two on there from the United States. Can you guess? Well, Seattle. Seattle. Can you guess what the other one is? Mm, it's not New York. Um, no, I have no clue. Iowa City. Okay, well, that kind of makes sense, actually, now that you say that. Because they have a big right, Iowa University, right? The, the, the Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah. which is probably the most famous, well-known, like, MFA writing program in the country, maybe in the world, I'm not sure. But so many well-known authors mm-hmm. and other creatives have come out of there. And so, actually, that was the first one named in the United States, hmm. and then Seattle. So some of them are places that you would expect, like Dublin. I mean, you can see why Dublin would be named a city of literature, thinking of all the, you know, James Joyce and... Oscar Wilde, Stoker, yep, yeah, all those. But then there were some like Baghdad. Like, mm. would you think of Baghdad as being a city of literature? But I would s- think of that being a city of literature faster than I would Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Well, so I was looking like, wh- what is it about Baghdad that makes it a city of literature? And I was looking, and you're so curious. I know I'm so curious. <laughs> so their popular music is based on Arabic poetry. They have more than 30 cultural saloons and eight cultural houses. They have a house of wisdom. Uh, They have a children's cultural house. They have a poetry project for Iraqi youth. Anyway, it was just kind of interesting. So I say that on your next venture, if you're looking for where should I go that's bookish, look at the um, Cities of Literature it's called citiesoflit.com. Well, you pick your ne- next destination. I'm going to look. So, okay. So you are totally copying off of me this year because I planned a trip. Haven't gone on it yet. We'll go on it this summer. Planned a trip a long time ago. And then Amy is trying to steal my thunder by going on her trip, planning it later than me and going on it before me. But I'm curious. <laughs> We're both going to Scotland. Mm-hmm. With Scotland, any cities in Scotland on the list? Did you look? Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. It's on there. Yeah. I I didn't mean to steal your thunder. Or, <laughs> I'm taking my daughter on a trip for her 20th birthday. It's sort of this thing that we do with our children when they turn 20. And my daughter first chose a safari in Africa, which I said, mm, I'd love to do that, but it's too expensive. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And then she said, Switzerland. Well, it turns out Switzerland is too expensive too. So then she said Scotland. And I thought Scotland might be doable. So, which is why I'm going there because it's, I mean, it's still expensive to take five people. It is. And I'm, it's only going to yeah. be the two of us. But yes. So but I'm, that makes me feel better that it's not as expensive as those other places. It's not so. as expensive as Switzerland, not as expensive as a African safari. Yeah. No. Anyway. Uh, so that's, that's my only bookish news, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that is. Mm-hmm. I'll have to look that up. Mm-hmm. I will look Very that up. Good. So, Carrie, I know I said I have been trudging through, I shouldn't say trudging, because I ended up, I did really like A Pale Blue Eye, but it, you know, it it went a little slow for me. What have you been reading this week? Well, this is a book that I actually finished a little while ago. I think it's funny that you're trying to get cat hair out of the air. (laughs) I am. She's petting the cat and there's cat hair floating everywhere. everywhere. I'm like, good luck with that, Amy. Oh my goodness, you're covered. I'm covered in cat hair. That's all right. 
so this is a book I read a little while ago. I listened to it as an audiobook. It's called Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with Kids by Scott Hershevitz. Mm. So my 15-year-old is taking a philosophy class. He's a freshman in high school. He's taking a philosophy class. And so this whole year, and he's been, you know, bringing up philosophical issues to to discuss, which which is fantastic. And so I saw this book, and I thought, oh, this sounds pretty interesting. So Hershevitz is a law and philosophy professor at the University of Michigan. And in this book, he discusses how his kids and his conversations with them have ended up making him think about philosophy. So more, I I should say more about philosophy, because he is a, a philosophy professor. So he says that young kids are just sort of natural philosophers, because they think about so much, and pretty deeply, too. I mean, kids are always asking questions. And really, that's what any good philosopher does, is they ask a lot of questions. So in this book, and, and in Hershevitz's life, Issues of morality, gender, authority, punishment, race, and knowledge are all par for the course. So it's kind of funny. So these these stories, now his boys are older now, but so this is when they were, you know, really anywhere from, say, three up to maybe age 10 or 11, something like that. He tells a story about when one of his sons was preschool age, he didn't want to take a bath. And that's totally normal. And his son screeches that he doesn't have any rights. <laughs> and so Hershevitz asks, you know, because, again, he's curious. He says to his son, or he asks his son, what is a right? And his son says, I don't know, but I know I don't have any. <laughs> so he really does a nice job of making you see how philosophy impacts your everyday life. So there's all sorts of issues that come up. And kids sometimes bring those issues to light more than we may be aware of. So it was super easy to listen to. It was funny. And it also really gave some some good parenting tips about how to get your kids to be thinkers, be deep thinkers. And and part of that is is letting them ask questions and, and not cutting them off or telling them what you think, but letting them sort of come to discover what they think about things. You know, one of my favorite and probably a lot of people's favorite philosophical concept is the trolley problem. And so actually from reading this book, it got me thinking about the trolley problem. And then I was able to incorporate the idea of the trolley problem into two different books that I was teaching, one at the middle school level and one at the high school level. Okay, for people like me who don't know a lot about philosophy, what is the trolley problem? So the trolley problem poses this question. So the idea is you're at a switch, at a trolley switch, and there's a trolley going down the road and it veers off into two tracks. And on one track is one person and they're like tied to the track. And on the other track are five people tied to the track. And so, you know, you've got the split second decision. You have to decide, are you going to switch the train and make it so that the train hits five people or the train it veers off and hits one person. And so you have to make this decision. And so, you know, when this comes up, then most people say, switch it so it only kills one person. But then sometimes the trolley problem can switch. And then they'll say, okay, now you're standing at the at the switch. 
but the one person is your mom. Mm. Does that change your answer? And so, so then you can have these discussions about, you know, how does that change the, the situation? In this book, though, he talks about how he actually got a letter from somebody who works on a, on a railroad oh. and wrote and said, here's what would really happen in the trolley problem. And it brought up an idea that was like another philosophical question, but it wasn't the philosophical question that has been posed to people. So anyway, this book, it's kind of a really cool parenting book. And if you're interested in philosophy, but you don't want to read like a heavy book about philosophy, this would be the perfect book to read because it explains a lot of philosophical concepts, but it does so in a very easy to understand way. So I I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's called, again, Nasty, Brutish, and Short, which comes from a Thomas Hobbes quote, Adventures in Philosophy with Kids by Scott Hershevitz. I remember when you read this and you talked about it a lot, how much you liked it. It's a really good book. Yeah. So what about you? Well. Like I said, we went on a, a short weekend visit to my parents, uh, my husband and I, and we've gotten so we like to listen to audiobooks. But finding an audiobook that we both will like is a little bit challenging because he and I don't generally like the same kind of fiction. And so I try to find memoir, although he reminded me that he doesn't really like memoir. <laughs> and so it's usually nonfiction, mm-hmm. a subject that we can both agree on. So I downloaded an audiobook called American Cheese, An Indulgent Odyssey Through the Artisan Cheese World by Joe Berkowitz. And this book had been on my radar because my oldest son worked for a cheesemaker for a little while, selling his cheeses at local farmer's markets and things. And my oldest son loves cheese and so that's always a good gift to get him is like either a gift card to a cheese shop or different kinds of cheeses he just loves trying them all so i had gotten him this book when it first came out in 2020 for christmas but (laughs) you know with my kids sometimes i buy them books because i love books but they often don't read the books that i get them and this is the case so i actually asked him just give me the book but i hadn't actually read it yet but thought it would be a good audiobook, which it was. It was narrated by Charlie Thurston. But basically, I don't know if you remember when I talked about the book Cork Dork last year by Bianca Bosker, but this is a similar formula. It's a person who suddenly discovers that they really like cheese and why don't I write a book about it and immerse myself in cheese for a whole year or wine in the case of Cork Dork for a whole year and then by the end look how far I've come. And so I will say you probably have to, you probably do have to really like cheese or be interested in cheese besides just your garden variety, cheddar and mozzarella, you know, Mm -hmm. that you get at the grocery store. But it's really interesting to hear like how they make the different cheeses, what makes them different, how the United States, the country that brought the world Velveeta and American cheese being low on the totem pole as far as creating cheese from around the world, but how we've actually been very innovative. Hmm. Because in a lot of countries, especially like in France or in Italy, they go very much by tradition. Like this is the way you have to make a Gruyere or this Mm -hmm. is the way you have to make a Parmesan. And there can be no deviation from that. Whereas in the United States, we don't have those same kinds of rules. rules. Mm -hmm. And so 
there's a lot more innovation, mm-hmm. you know, to try different things. Uh, so anyway, the author starts out just going to some cheese tasting classes in New York City, and then he starts going to some like conventions, and then you know he gets in with some cheese mongers, which are cheese like sellers. a fishmonger, yeah, but it's sort of like a sommelier, like mm-hmm. in wine, mm-hmm. where they have to take a credentialing test, where you have to be able to taste different cheeses and be able to say what kind they are, and then he goes to France and goes to this huge world cheese competition where the cheesemongers have to make like artistic creations with the cheese. I thought it was really fascinating. Actually, my husband and I are going to New York City next weekend for a long weekend trip. And I just signed us up for a Cheese 101 class at one of the shops that they mentioned uh, because I thought it would be fun. And I think we may order some cheese from one of the cheese companies that they talk about that has like this apparently mind-blowingly good blue cheese. And we thought, well, that might be a good birthday gift for him. But I will say by the end of the book, you know how you feel when you eat too much cheese? Mm-hmm. Constipated. <laughs> actually, they address that in the very first chapter. Really? And actually, this gastroenterologist that he interviewed said it's more likely to give you the runs than to constipate you. Really? Yes. Yes. Hmm. But I find if I eat too much cheese, you know, even though I love it, I start to feel like there's lead in my mm-hmm. stomach and just kind of a little. And by the end of the book... You start to feel a little bit like, like that. I'm just cheesed out. You start to feel that way a little bit by just eight hours of listening about cheese. It's really awesome. Like the first six hours. <laughs> yes. And then you're like, oh, God, no more cheese. <laughs> but I have that issue not infrequently with nonfiction. Like I really, really like the subject up to a certain point, And then I feel like it's just. I don't need to hear any more about yeah. that subject. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm at 92% on this book. I still give it four stars. Mm-hmm. It was a really fun audiobook to listen to. The, the narrator is very animated. And actually, you would probably like it because you like cheese. I do like cheese. You do like cheese. Although, like, the whole blue cheese, like... Uh-huh. Because, uh, I don't know, cheese that that looks like it's well on its way out you know like it's decaying i'm not a big fan of that kind of cheese well you don't have to be yeah yeah although i think i would be interested to i would probably be more interested in the chapter about those Uh type of cheeses because they freak me the heck out well it's funny they were saying that actually artisan cheese in the united states really happened because of a group of about five or six women Hmm. in different parts of the country who decided to start raising goats like they left their corporate jobs and wanted to have sort of more of like a live on a farm with some goats and mm-hmm. decided, oh, well, maybe I can make some cheese with this goat milk that my goats are making. Hmm. And that's sort of what started the chevra, you know, fresh yeah. chevra, yeah. fresh goat cheese. That sort of started the artisan huh. cheese movement in the United States. It's very cool. Some of them, you know, are still going strong, like um, there's one in Indiana called Capriol. Anyway, it was it was fascinating to me. I recommend it. Especially if you like cheese, and who doesn't? Who doesn't really like cheese? Actually, I, somebody I was with this morning doesn't like cheese. Really? Yeah. Gosh, I don't know if you can trust somebody who doesn't like cheese. They they could have like a you know like a digestive issue. With well, cheese, that's true. I, 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 yes. 
Again, the name of that book is American Cheese, an Indulgent Odyssey Through the Artisan Cheese World by Joe Berkowitz. And it has a very cool cover that shows the Statue of Liberty with a big cheese cube stuck to one of the uh, spikes on her crown. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. Okay. And when we come back, we're going to talk about middle grade March. I have to mention, I was just looking at my tickets I have for my cheese class. Uh-huh. They're called Cheese 101, Becoming a Curd Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. I, I like it. That's pretty funny. I like it. Well, it's March, middle grade March, and you and I both like to read middle grade books, although I came to it much later than you. Mm-hmm. Because you teach middle schoolers, you've been reading them for a while. I only came to them a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm so glad I did, but I'm late to the party. That's okay. I, I'm I'm throwing some old school middle grade books. Well, when I was out. trying to come up with my list of five that I was going to talk about today, it was really hard because I feel like I have talked about some really good ones on the podcast in the last year or two, and I didn't want to repeat them, although I will write. Right now. I will right now. You know, some of my favorites are The One and Only Bob, The One and Only Ivan by Catherine Applegate, Pax by Sarah Pennypacker, A Monster Calls by Pat- Patrick Ness. Although I looked that one up and it actually says it's more YA. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a fine line. But yeah, those are all really good mm-hmm. ones. All yeah. really good I mean, ones. I could definitely write a longer, yes. longer list. But I stuck to the ones that I legit love like when if somebody says to me middle grade books these are the the five that i'm like these are really good yeah four of them i've taught like they're so good that yeah i teach them because the kids love them love 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 them what do you look for in a middle grade book that makes you love it to be totally honest, one of the big things is if it's won a Newbery Award, mm. you know, in terms of whether I teach it. But as a general rule, Newbery Award winning books, there's always a really good story, but there's just something deeper to it. And I find that to be the case. I've read lots and lots and lots of Newbery Award winners, and, you know, they're excellent. They're every. I think every single one I talk about, oh, well, except for one, has won a, a Newbery Award. So that's really a big thing. I mean, I read lots of middle grade books, but I, there's usually, you know, there's a difference between just any old middle grade book and a Newbery Award winner. So those are the ones that I tend to like more. But there's some that, you know, that haven't won, but man, I could see them being really close to winning one. As I was making up my list, I think all but one of mine had won a Newbery or one as a National Book Award winner. Mm-hmm. But what I find I like about them, I often read them as a palate cleanser sometimes between like adult books that are heavy and I want something fun. Now, not all the books that I'm going to talk about are fun, but there's there's tends to be something lighter about them than an adult book. And I don't know if it's because the characters, because they're that middle grade age, they're not as jaded, maybe? I don't know. 
Do you know what I'm saying? I do, but I think that's probably more what you're bringing to the book as opposed to what the book is bringing to you. Mm Because I'm just thinking about, I mean, some of it is that, you know, the protagonists are always kids. Right. And so they have, to some extent, that innocence, at least for part of the book. But I wonder if part of it is just your perception I guess I'm just thinking of a lot, like some of the books that I'm thinking of. I mean, they're pretty darn heavy books, heavy books. Yeah. And I don't know that, you know, maybe there's more of a hopeful ending on them that, that there's just enough of that, that it feels like it's lighter because I can see that. But the topics that they deal with are, oh, yeah. are just as heavy as anything I've ever read in in an adult book. I think maybe the adult books are like, well, this sucks and it's hopeless and, (laughs) you know, but this is just the way life is where I think maybe the younger, you know, even if it's just a little bit, they have that little bit of hope that not all is bleak and doom and defeat. It might also be, and we'll see as we start talking about the books here in just a second, it might be also... the type of books that I'm picking mm. to to read. You generally pick heavier books anyway. Mm-hmm. I know we talked about why we like it, but for an adult who's never read a middle grade book, why should an adult try a middle grade book? They're faster to get through than a an adult book. Even if they're 250 pages, I mean, they just read faster than an adult book does. I think reading... Uh, a middle grade book sort of puts you back in touch with your middle grade self. And I think there's a lot of adults who uh, sort of, I don't know. Could benefit I, from that. Well, they probably could because I think they look at middle schoolers or high schoolers and they're like, you know, they sort of turn into crotchety, like, stepping on my lawn, <laughs> you know, and and it's like, we all have that middle schooler that still lives in us. It doesn't go away. And really, if it does go away, I don't know that that's such a great thing. I, I think it's sort of good to stay in touch with your inner middle schooler. The other thing is, I think there's just some really good lessons that that these books impart. And, and it is different from the lessons that an adult book imparts. And maybe part of that is that that little twinge of hope Mm. that you can overcome these things, you can get through it. And sometimes adult books, I don't know that they're as good about doing that. They don't necessarily have that heartwarming feel. And I feel like middle school books do. That's that's one of the things, if it's a really well done middle school book, it gets that part Mm -hmm. right. Okay, let's get started. What's your first one? All right, my first one is The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963, by Christopher Paul Curtis, and it published in 1995. So this is by far one of my absolute favorite books. It's the story of a family of five, a mom, a dad, a sister named Joetta, and two brothers, Kenny and Byron. And the oldest brother, Byron, gets into all kinds of trouble where they live in Flint, Michigan. So his parents decide that he needs to go live in Alabama with his maternal grandmother. So the family journeys there in their car in the summer of 1963. So, you know, you get to see what it's like for an African-American family in Flint, these kids going to public schools, and what happens on their journey to Alabama, and then once they get there. So 
they pretty quickly discover, the kids do, just how treacherous life is in the South. Kenny is soon traumatized by the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church that killed four young girls. So they return, they go back to Michigan because it's pretty clear to the parents that it's not safe down there and that this has been a situation that has maybe forced Byron to mature in a way that that he needed to mature. This has been one of my favorite books since I taught it. That was over 20 plus years ago. You know, the thing is, it's serious, but it is so funny. Like, this is a loving, awesome family. And so, you know, you see the dynamic of a family where they love each other, but they don't always get along, but it's really funny. And then there's just some beautiful writing. There's this one chapter, it's when they're driving and they're going through the mountains and the clouds are coming down. And I I would specifically teach that chapter to students because it's full of similes and metaphors and just beautiful language. So highly recommend. The Watsons go to Birmingham, 1963. Well, uh, when I was making my list, like I said, it was hard to narrow it down, but I tried to pick some books that were in different types of categories. And what I realized is that one trope that I really like in middle grade books is when one of your young protagonists forms a bond with an older like a grandparent or an older person. And so the first book that I'm going to talk about falls into that category. It's called The Evolution of Calpurnia Tate by Jacqueline Kelly. This was a Newbery Honor book. This book was from 2009. It's the first book in a duology, a two-book duology, and it is about Calpurnia Tate, who is an 11-year-old girl in Texas in the year 1899. And she is a girl who is interested in science and nature around her, just like her cantankerous grandfather who lives with them or nearby. And she is the only girl in a family of seven. She has six older brothers. And so different things are expected of her than of her brothers, which she comes to find out. So even though she likes science and nature, that's not what her mother wants her to do. Her mother wants her to do her sewing and and cooking and things like that. And so she develops this really close relationship with her grandfather who goes to bat for her a little bit with her mother. And you see what limitations were put on girls at that time. So it's a great book for this multi-generational relationship. It's also a good book for STEM. Um, And it's also one for, you know, feminist leanings. So again, the name of that is The Evolution of Calpurnia Tate by Jacqueline Kelly. I know you like that one I do too. like that one. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. All right. My next book is, <laughs> this is even older than the first one, by 20 years. This is Dragon Wings by Lawrence Yep. It was published in 1975. Wow. Yeah. And actually, I teach this book and I had my son read this book and he loved it. He loved this book. And so it is a story of Moonshadow. He's a boy who grows up in China, having never met his father, who lives in, works in San Francisco, and sends money back to the family. When Moonshadow is around eight, he goes to California to meet and live with his dad. They live among a group of men who run a laundry business together. As he gets to know his father, he learns that his dad had a dream in which he was told he was a dragon king. So his father has an interest in flying, which Moonshadow encourages. 
you know, so it, it's the story of a father and son. It's the story of a father's dream and how his son tries to share in that dream. The book also talks about the Wright brothers. The father sends a letter to the to the Wright brothers and gets a response. And it also talks about the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Moonshadow and his father end up befriending a, a white woman and her granddaughter. And so then you have some of the the issues, you know, between getting to know somebody from a totally different culture. And actually, I mean, I've known about this book for a really long time, but it wasn't until recently that I learned it's actually part of a series called The Gold Mountain Chronicles, which follows several generations of a family from 1849 to 1995. Oh. So, you know, that's a book that if you pick up Dragon Wings and you like it, there are other books. Again, not about that same particular family, but different generations of one family. All right, what's your next one? My next one goes into fantasy a little bit. It's The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. He's the author who has written very popular adult books such as American Gods and Sandman, a graphic novel. He wrote Good Omens. Oh, right. The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Right. Uh, but this is one of his middle grade books. And uh, it was published in 2008. And it is the story of a boy, an unusual boy named Nobody Owens, and he goes by Bod. And he's the only living resident of a graveyard. And his guardians are the ghosts. And his main guardian is actually neither living nor dead, but seems to have some resemblance to a vampire. But there's dangers all around them by both humans, uh, some that killed his human family and also ghouls and he has to bod has to manage all of these dangers it's a fun book uh it's especially fun to read during halloween it's a perfect little book for that even though it's fantasy there's not like a ton of world building or anything like that and so if that's not really your jam this is a a fun fantasy book to get into it's a lot about identity which, you know, I mean, his name is Nobody. Right. So. <laughs> right. Yep. All right. Are you ready for my next one? Yep. Okay. So I, I did 1995. I did 1975. Now I'm doing 1985. You're you're big on those. Uh, <laughs> the fives, I guess. The mid-decades. Yeah. So this is Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Now, I had never heard of this book until one of my students over 20 years ago, I was teaching sixth grade, and one of my students came up and said, have you read this book? And I said, no. And he went on and on and on and on about it, about how good it was. And so on that student's recommendation, I read the book and loved it so much that I read every book in the series. <laughs> so sometimes when kids recommend stuff to you, you need to listen to them. So this is the story of Ender. He's a boy who has unique abilities that lead him to be sent into space to become perhaps one of the great military leaders of all time. He leaves behind his mom and his dad, also his sister Valentine and his brother Peter. Both of his siblings, military leaders, had thought might be capable of taking on the alien race that the Earth is currently fighting against in this story. But they had sort of these personality flaws that made the military experts realize that they weren't suitable. But Ender comes along and Ender sort of is the perfect blend of what is needed. 
So Ender leaves Earth and heads to battle school where he's feared by some of the kids, he's hated by others, and respected by still others. At the end of the novel, Ender learns a secret about the war games that he's been playing in preparation for the battle he will have as an adult. And it's a little bit mind-blowing and really awesome. So you read it and then your jaw sort of drops open. So Ender's Game, if you like a series, the, the other books in the series, you see what happens to Ender and his siblings when they grow up. And it's a good series. So Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Highly recommend. Very good. Well, my next one is The War That Saved My Life by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley. This was also a Newbery Honor book. I listened to this on audio. I recommend the audio. The audiobook was narrated by Jane Entwistle, and it won a 2016 Odyssey Award for Audiobook Excellence. But this is a historical fiction set during World War II, And our main character is 10-year-old Ada, and she and her little brother, Jamie, are sent out of London to escape the the Blitzkrieg, where the Germans were bombing London. And this was actually very common. All the children in London were sent to the countryside, uh, where it was less likely that they were going to be bombed. And so... Do you know the name, what it was called? Operation Pod Piper. Oh, no, I'd forgotten about that. Mm -hmm. So Ada has an abusive, cruel mother who is ashamed of her because of her club foot and doesn't want anybody to see her. So she's almost kind of like locked away in the house and doesn't go to school or anything like that. So when Ada and Jamie are sent to the countryside, they end up with a woman named Susan Smith uh, who takes them in. And it's there that she sort of develops a a bond with Susan. She learns how to read. She learns how to write. She learns how to ride ponies. She develops a lot of self-confidence. But once the bombing is over, will she have to go back to her mother? And what happens then? She's kind of a new person. She's really blossomed in what happens if she has to go back. So I adored this book. There is a second book, which I have not read. But again, the name of that is The War That Saved My Life by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley from 2015. That's a good one. Yeah, it's a very it's good a one. It's a good one. It's also, I don't know if I mentioned it. It's also a Newberry. A Newberry honor. All right. My next one is The Wednesday Wars by Gary Schmidt. I'm finally into the 21st century. (laughs) You're doing yours chronologically. Mine are completely random. This was published in 2007. It is the story of Holling Hood Hood, which is a great character name. He's a boy growing up in 1967 when the culture wars over Vietnam are just beginning. So his father is a pompous architect. His mother puts up with him for reasons no one understands. And his sister (laughs) is a wannabe hippie. And we only learn the name of the sister at the very end of the book, which is kind of weird. Holling has what he feels is a strained relationship with his teacher, Mrs. Baker. But Mrs. Baker does not hate him, despite what Holling thinks. She ends up teaching him Shakespeare because I think she's hoping that Holling will become his own person rather than a carbon copy of his father, which is sort of Mr. Hoodhood's plan. And by reading Shakespeare, Holling learns some important lessons about what it is to be a decent human being. 
And so this book, it's a perfect way to sort of introduce middle schoolers to Shakespeare. When I teach this, I have my students read prior to it. Uh, they can read either The Tempest or I can't remember what the other one is. It's one of the other comedies. Um, and again, it's one of those books where it's really funny. Like it is laugh out loud funny, but it is also so touching. You picked that for your book club book one year. Yeah. And it was very cute. I didn't get the sucky bowl. You didn't get the sucky <laughs> bowl. You did not. You did not. Okay. So my fourth one did not win any awards except for in my heart. It did not win a Newberry. Mm. It's called Same Sun Here. And it was co-written by Silas House and Neela Vaswani. And Silas House is a very popular author from Kentucky. He has a book out right now called Lark Ascending and Southernmost came out several years ago. And Neela Vaswani is based in New York and I think has written some other books for children. This is an epistolary novel between a boy named River who lives in rural Appalachia and whose father is a coal miner and Mina, who is an Indian immigrant girl who lives in New York City. And they start a pin pal relationship. And that pin pal relationship continues and they form an actual friendship that sort of defeats uh, cultural expectations. And they learn that they have so much in common, even though their backgrounds are so completely different. Both of their fathers sort of have to travel far away to go to work. They both have very close relationships with their grandmothers. They both have a love of dogs. And it shows that the gifts that you can give yourself and others when you open yourself up to new experiences and new cultures. And I love the title, Same Sun Here, because they write to each other that they're not as different as what they think because they're both looking at the same sun when they look up in the sky. So I really enjoyed this one. I did not listen to this on audiobook, but apparently it did win some sort of Audi Award for audiobook. Um, but again, this was called Same Sun Here by Silas House and Neela Vaswani. Very good. All right, my last one is from 2015. It's Echo by Pam Munoz Ryan. So this is a historical fiction book, but it has a touch of fantasy as it centers around a fairy tale. So a boy named Otto is given a harmonica by the characters from a fairy tale he's reading in the German woods in the 1930s. This harmonica touches his life but then the harmonica goes on across the ocean to touch the lives of other characters in later decades. In the end, all of these characters end up coming together in unexpected ways, which saves the fairy tale characters from their imprisonment. So this was really imaginative. It's one of those books that I really want to read again because it's totally worth a second and a third read. There's lots of meat to it that I think one reading sort of blows your mind, but I think other readings, you'll get something different from each one. So that's Echo by Pam Munoz Ryan. I started listening to the audiobook of that, which was very good and includes music mm. in it. This is a lame reason not to finish a book, but I didn't finish it by the time that they took it back. Mm -hmm. And, and then you didn't renew it. Well, this was back before they had the Libby app. It was with a oh, different app. Gotcha. But there was a waiting list. Mm. And then I kind of forgot about it. But now I want to go back and try it again. Mm. But maybe if you're going to read it yeah. again, maybe try the audiobook version since I think it was an award winning yeah. audiobook. So cool. Yeah. 
All right. Okay. What's your last my one? final one. This was a National Book Award winner for 2014. It's The Green Glass House by Kate Milford. And this is, you know, one of my favorites. It's a wintry book mm-hmm. <laughs> set at a somewhat magical manor called Green Glass House that used to be a smuggler's inn. And so Milo, who's our main character, is a 12-year-old boy adopted um, by the owners, and he is on his winter vacation for Christmas when very odd guests start appearing one after another at the door of Greenglass House. And then items start to go missing in the house. So Milo and his new friend, Medi, who's the cook's daughter, they must pick up on these clues to solve the mystery of what's going on. This is a very whimsical book. It feels sort of magical, you know, because of the winter, because it's the holidays. And also just there is a little bit of real magic going on. There's quirky characters. It's sort of as if you had an Agatha Christie mystery for kids with a magical touch. Mm. And there is another book in the series called Ghosts of Green Glass House, and there might even be one after that. There are actually five books in the Green Glass House series. But I read this over one Christmas, and it was delightful, and I recommend it. It's The Green Glass House by Kate Milford. Very good. Okay, we have... Ten We gave you ten middle grade books worthy of your TBR lists. Okay, let's take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about love and hate. We are back and we're doing a new little segment that we're calling love and hate because I love a lot of things and Carrie hates a lot of things. And so... Do you want me to start? Should we start with love sure, or hate? Sure, sure. Okay. Or maybe we should start with mine because it's kind of a downer. Oh, God. Okay. Sorry. Well, that's what happens if if I'm doing things I hate or things I dislike. Is yours a thing or a situation? Mine's a thing. Mine's a situation. Okay. You start first and then we'll end with mine. Okay. There's been talk, uh, you know, the state legislature Mm -hmm. is passing a lot of laws or trying to pass laws dealing with drag shows and trans people. And it's just, it really gets on my nerves. Like, I'm really... I'm trying to understand the bill. Are they trying to ban drag shows completely? Because I don't really understand how they can do that. No, no. What they're trying to do is they're trying to put these nitpicky rules that say, like, you can have a drag show, but you can't have it within a thousand feet of a school or a park or basically any place where a child might be. Or, you know, the zoo or whatever. Basically, they don't want the drag show story times. Yes, is that it? I, I think that so. Are at I, think, I think that's and it. And, stores and things. right. And the thing is, I mean, aside from the fact that doing all this has to, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but I would think that it has to violate some First Amendment protection about creative, free creative expression. I, I would think, and and I've even heard things about how like the lawmakers are having to really look at the language because, you know, like Broadway shows, I go to see Broadway shows and there are very often 
people dressed in clothes of the other gender or whatever. Right. And so it's like, what, are we... Are we not going to be able to see Broadway shows? I mean, here's the thing that's so ridiculous about this. What about, about like, Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie? Yeah, and... or Klinger in yeah. MASH. Yeah. Well, you know what? During Shakespeare's time, they didn't allow women on stage. So men performed all the characters. So they dressed as women. And then the other thing is with children who are trans. On the one hand, you know, because this is what they say, is that we're trying to protect children. Okay, well, here's the problem I have with this. Why is it the government's role to come in and say what parents can do with their kids if their kids are trans or think they might be trans? That's okay, but it's not okay for the government to say that children need a COVID vaccine. If the government is allowed to say what you can and can't do with your children, you know what I mean? It seems hypocritical. Why is this something that the government can have a say in with children who are trans or think they might be? But if we're doing a public health thing, that's different. And I and parents have the right to do exactly what they want with their children. I mean, part of the problem I have with that one is because all of the medical associations, a lot of these rules that you're instituting are just bad. They're harmful. They're harmful to kids. And so I kind of feel like if all of these associations are saying what you're doing, this law is a really bad idea, lawmakers should listen to that. But some of these lawmakers have their heads up their butts. So let's talk about what you love. Because now I'm heated and feel like I need an alcoholic beverage. <laughs> the thing I'm loving on right now is that I'm always looking for inexpensive ways to bring a little bit of joy into my life. And so something that I have found recently is that, well, first of all, I don't know if you knew this. If, you, if you're if you a person who likes flowers, fresh flowers, if you go to Kroger, there is a section of clearance flowers. They sometimes hide it like behind all the other flowers, but you can get fresh flowers for d- discounted price. I've known this for a few years and I used to buy like, you know, bouquets of flowers that I would put out. And now I've kind of moved to, I have lots of like tiny little vases or even like bottles that, you know, Starbucks Frappuccinos in them. You know, the type of little bottles I'm talking about, like you buy a little Frappuccino in. Like a little tiny milk bottle. Like little tiny milk milk bottles, things like that. I bought a, a Kroger's clearance a bunch of just baby's breath. It cost me $2. Mm-hmm. And I divided that among about six little vases. And I put them all over the house. And every time I, I'm in a different room and I see one, it just makes me happy. Yeah. And it's simple. And, it, and it's it, $2. And it was $2. Plus, I mean, if you don't have vases, you you can use just whatever you had. Like mm-hmm. I used one, like a little milk creamer that I had that sometimes I use at Thanksgiving or just whatever you have that you can put flowers in, even if it's only a sprig. And it makes me happy whatever room I'm in, especially in wintertime. You know, you don't see flowers outside Mm -hmm. and you just need like just a little pick me up. Or when you don't understand what the whole point of your legislature is, then you can look at your flowers and it'll make you feel a little bit of... it seems so simple compared to what you were hating on. But, you know, sometimes you just need a little... You need to find happiness where you can find it. Yes. And so that's the thing I'm loving on right now. Very good. Okay. Well, let's end with 
What have we added to our TBR this week? All right. So I am doing a little bit of Scotland reading. Oh. Believe it or not. Because we're we're kind of making a circuit, I guess, of the country, or at least the northern part of the country. So there's a couple books. One is called A History of Scotland by Neil Oliver. And I've read that this is a pretty good, if you want to sort of get a quick history of Scotland. I added that. And then there's a series by Alexander McCall Smith called 44 Scotland Street. Mm. And so I added that. I am reading... Scottish historical fiction book right now that I'll talk about at a later date once I've finished it. But then another book that I added, a friend of mine posted this, and I really like the author's book that I had read before. So the author is Genevieve Gornichek, and she wrote uh, The Witch's Heart, which was about Angrabotha, who's Loki's wife. I love that book. Uh, Apparently, she has a new book out called The Weaver and the Witch Queen. Oh, I did see she had a new one out. Yeah. And I don't know. uh, I don't know what that's about. Looks like Norway. Vikings, you know, kind of that's kind of my jam. So anyway, those are three that I've just added. Good. Well, when I saw my mother this weekend from her library, she collects this little magazine called Book Pages. I mean, I don't know who publishes it. Mm -hmm. Maybe some sort of library association. Bookpage is an independent website and print magazine that is a recommendation guide highlighting the best new books by their editors. And my mother finds it at her library for free. Maybe you can too. Mm -hmm. But it's about new releases that are coming out and... I had a little time. Mm-hmm. And so I sat and, and read that and I added all kind of books oh my gosh. from there onto my list. One was called Raw Dog, The Naked Truth About Hot Dogs by Jamie Loftus. Which, the, have you seen the episode of Shrinking where the Harrison Ford character talks about raw dogging? Yes, <laughs> I have. I know. That's part of the, so the title made me laugh. Apparently, Jamie Loftus is a comedian as oh. well. And so she sort of does this dive into American culture through the hot dog. I don't know. It It just sounded intriguing. Uh, another one is called Once Upon a Tome, The Misadventures of a Rare Bookseller by Oliver Darkshire, who went through a uh, bookselling apprenticeship at a rare book dealer in London. Mm. And, you know, old books always have that really nice smell. I've been pricing some antiquarian and rare books at the Rosewater recently. So it it sounded like something I might like. And let's see, where's a fiction one? Oh, Dream Girl by Laura Lipman, which is her most recent. I read The Lady in the Lake recently, which is my first Laura Lipman. She's a crime mystery writer. This one, there's a man who writes crime mysteries, and he gets a call from a woman who has the same name as one of the characters in his book, and she starts making demands. Mm. It's supposed to be a complex tale of psychological suspense with echoes of Stephen King's misery. Mm. That is one of my favorite Stephen King books. So that is what is on my TBR recently. Two that are going to be published soon. And one that was, I think, published last year. Cool. Very good. All right, Carrie. We're out. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. 
For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. Y'all, we love our listeners. We'd like to have some new ones. So if you like our show, you like what we're doing, tell a friend about it. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. And if you leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform or on Facebook, it makes it easier for book lovers to find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org. 